You remember the, a couple weeks ago? Did you forget everything I told you then? <laughs> Pretty much? <laughs> Thank you, babes. If there's one area that I think that Christians need to really focus themselves on nowadays is proper study of Scripture. We often hear, why are there so many different churches that believe so many different things and there's so many theological differences all over the place? The Bible is just so open to interpretation. I take exception to that. I I still am of the opinion that if you took a thousand people and you somehow managed to take everything that they've ever been taught, ever been told, uh, anything they've ever believed, or ever, you know, somehow emptied all that out of them, gave them a Bible, and told them to study it, they would all come out with the same doctrine. That's what I believe. I believe that we get so many different doctrinal beliefs because so many. Well, we approach it with preconceived ideas already. Or we've been raised in church, uh, say in a Baptist church, so we've been in a Baptist church for 40 years or 50 years, and so we're just Baptist. And sometimes we become, become more Baptist than we are Christian. And that's not the way it should be either. And so we're going to get into a little bit of that. But this is out of the Amplified, Jude Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was making an effort to write to you about our common salvation, I was compelled to write to you, urgently appealing that you fight strenuously for the defense of the faith. This is not an easy battle, defending the faith. Fight strenuously for the defense of the faith, which is once for all handed down to the saints. That's a very key passage right there. Once for all. If anyone ever says, well, there's this book here that came later, and there's also this book and this writing that is also should be in the, in the Scripture, that's a lie. The Gospel of God, the, the Word of the living God, was given once and for all to the saints. It, it hasn't been added on to. There's no additional books on top of the Word of God. Once and for all, handed down to the saints, the faith that is the sum of Christian belief that was given verbally to the believers. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, just as if they were sneaking in by a side door. They are ungodly persons whose condemnation was predicted long ago, for they distort the grace of our God into decadence and immoral freedom, viewing it as an opportunity to do whatever they want. Sound like any modern churches you know. (laughs) And they deny and disown our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you'll direct me today, clear my mind, help me to give the people something that's going to help them in practical understanding of your word. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, I tell you, I, I love apologetics. I, I, I think it's fun. I try to mix things up. Sometimes, you know, I spit and spew and carry on and, and pace the floor and, and all that stuff. And other times I just want to get into deep uh, apologetics. We're at that point. We're trying to do some apologetics. If you'll remember, hermeneutics is a branch of knowledge that deals with the interpretation, especially the Bible or literary text. You don't know how, there won't be a test. You don't have to take a test to know what hermeneutics is. You're not going to have to remember that word. But the principle is important of these words. 
It's basically a how, what, who, why. Anybody ever been in journalism or, or learning to be a reporter? That's what they teach you. That's how you approach Scripture. Who, what, how, why. All that needs to go in studying of Scripture to make it make sense. Exegesis is a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of Scripture. To, to the Greek, it is to lead out. That means you take your Bible. I don't even know where mine is right at the moment. You take your Bible... And you get into it and draw out of it what is in there. That's exegesis. You're digging out of that word what is in it and bringing it to you. Eisegesis is the opposite. It is a process of interpreting a text or a portion of text in, which, in such a way that the process introduces one's own presuppositions and agendas. That means you, you, you say, this is what I believe, this is what I stand for, now let me find it in the Bible. And that's the way modern theological interpretation is done so often nowadays. So that was a quick review of exegesis and eisegesis. You don't have to remember those words, but remember the principles. To exegete, a person skilled in exegesis, an expounder of textual interpreter, especially of scripture. An exegete is like a good friend who listens to you and makes sure to understand you and really considers everything you say. I totally understand what you mean, buddy. An eisegete is a person who places meaning on a text which is not originally or inherently present in the text. An eisegete is like an obnoxious co-worker who has a selective hearing. He exaggerates everything, talks over you, puts words into your mouth, and makes himself the hero of every story. I'm going to act like I agree with you, but when, then I'll twist your words to conform to what I wish you would have said. Then I'll say you, you said that. And that's basically what an eisegete does. And anybody who's ever done this, coming up and preaching, you'll know how often things, you'll say things and somebody will come back to you and say, well, you said this and they come across with something that you never even thought of. That wasn't what I said. That wasn't, will you take me to the, to the recording and tell me where I said that, please? <laughs> they do it all the time. Ask political candidates if people ever do that to them. <laughs> Context is everything in scripture. We, <laughs> We have to look at immediate context. What does the verse say along with the verse before and after? We have uh, a sniper the- way of theology. We, somebody somewhere down the line, and I could go into the story someday, about how the verses and chapters got into the Bible. It didn't come that way. It came as one solid writing. When, they, when he wrote the book of Ephesians, it was the book of Ephesians. There were no verses, no chapters in there. We have placed verses and chapter, chapters and verses in there to make it easier, which is good, but the problem with that is people get used to quoting verses. Yes. <laughs> That's the problem. This verse says this. Guess Ernie's back. He wore a ghost is coming in. This verse says this, and, and we get used to that, and it hurts our context. We struggle with getting context because of that. You doing all right there, brother? <laughs> many people live by this sniper the- theology how many times have you heard judge not you heard that all the time anytime you try to stand for anything judge not 
If you say that's sin, judge not. They throw that up all the time. Do you think those people have ever read Matthew or Romans where, those, where it talks about judgment? They wouldn't know it if it hit them in the forehead. And if you look at the text, the context, you'll find that actually it's telling us to judge. It's telling us the proper way to judge. In fact, Scripture tells us that the spiritual judge all things. Hey, Ernie. Glad to see you back. <laughs> You're like a bad penny. Just won't go away. <laughs> if we hear, you all right there? We hear him say, love your neighbor. Another one that you hear all the time. You probably quoted this to your kids. I'm sure I did. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. If you ask somebody who has that plastered on their mirror in their bathroom, or, you know, in a, in a placard on the wall or something, what's the context of that passage? I'll guarantee you they have no idea. They have no idea who it was written to, what he was talking about, or anything that's in there. Context is everything. If they isolated sentences or partial sentences that you say, they could make you guilty of anything. <laughs> they have to take context of what was being said. James 4.2 is a good example. Uh, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because you ask not. One of the favorite verses of the health, wealth, prosperity preachers. They love this one. They, they have whole books about this verse talking about you, you just don't have because you haven't learned to pray. You need to know how to ask for things. And if you ask for it right and you pray in faith, you'll get anything you want. And they go on and on and on. And if you do it right, you'll be rich and you'll drive a Cadillac and you'll have a big mansion and all the wonderful things. Well, you, <laughs> <laughs> you, you sit there and be good. <laughs> Well, let's look at what context does to this verse. <laughs> Next verse. Ye ask and ye receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it on your own lusts. Wow, doesn't that pretty well absolutely destroy what the, pros uh, the prosperity preachers are trying to do with it? <laughs> because their whole context is it's about getting it for your own lusts. But they don't like the second part of that passage. You have to have context in what you're doing. Jeremiah 29, 11, I already talked about that one, but it's a great example. Let's look at how context works. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. And we, we give this when our kids are getting ready to do a hundred yard dash and they're, 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 they're pumped up and ready to go and you, you quote that verse to them. Or your college kid is all fretting and worried about a test that's coming up and we quote that passage to them. And we do this to, to encourage people. And, and I guess that's good. But we have to know context. It's written on graduation cards, quoted to encourage people who can't seem to find God's will and doled out like a doctor explaining a prescription. Take Jeremiah 20 and 9, 11 a few times with a full glass of water and call me in the morning and I think you'll feel better. It's just a, a feel-good, make-you-feel-good type verse. You keep using that Bible verse, I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and that's very often the case. Careless interpretation. This is what we like to do. 
It's written to me. Everything in the Bible that I like is written to me. If I don't like it, it was written to somebody else. That verse right there says, I'm going to be blessed. That's mine. This one over here says, there's judgment coming. That's yours. I don't want that one. It's written to me right now. When was the Bible written? 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago? Does that mean there are things in Scripture that apply today? Absolutely. Does everything in Scripture apply today? No. Not everything. It fits my situation. Let me take this verse and pigeonhole it into my situation. That's got to let me get it in there. It's got to work for my problem that I'm having right now. It's got to work. I can stand on it as a promise. There are people that stand on so many promises out of the Bible that had absolutely nothing to do with the promise to them. <laughs> and this is one of them, actually. It's written to make me feel warm and fuzzy. That's why it's there. God wanted me to feel good today. That's why he put that verse there. When it comes to reading the Bible, we can sometimes be so familiar with the words on the page that we read them, but don't really understand them. You and I, if you've been in church for a long time, you have heard preachers quote the same passages. Your Sunday school teachers quote the same passages. You, if you went to a Christian school, they made you memorize the same passages. You can quote them. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. We got it. We got that thing. We know it. But because we know it so well, we fail to study it. Amen. We fail to get in the, and, and understand the true meaning of the text because we think we know what it says. We think we understand. Familiarity breeds laziness. We become lazy. I could quote that verse to you. Well, good. What does it mean? I don't know, but I can quote it to you. We got it. Kind of reminds me of the reporter down on the street in Portland the other day asking what they were protesting about. They had no idea. They had no clue. Boy, he is sure racist. What did he say that was racist? Uh, well, he sure is, though. <laughs> Many of our misunderstandings about the Scripture happen because we are too familiar with the passage to look at it with fresh eyes. Sometimes we have to back up and approach John 3.16 like we've never, ever seen it before. What does it mean? What is the, the value there? Let's look at the immediate context of Jeremiah 29. Uh, 29. You go to verse 1, it says, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residence, a residue of the elders which were carried away captive, and to the priests, and to the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who was he talking to? Israel. Judah. He was talking to a nation, not an individual. He was talking to a whole nation at the time. Although this passage is typically quoted to individuals, school kids, athletes, job seekers, people having a bad day, the passage is actually written to a group of people, a whole nation, in fact. you got to look at the context. Does that mean that principles that God is speaking to a nation doesn't apply to an individual? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. How about the verse just before it? In, in verse 10, for thus saith the Lord, after, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. 
wait a minute, 70 years? So you got good things planned for me in 70 years? Sell that one to your college kid. <laughs> Sweetie pie, God is going to help you with this test. It's just going to be about seven decades. You'll be okay. Takes the whole meaning of this passage away. It totally me- different meaning. How about later in the same chapter? Same chapter. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will send upon them the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. I will persecute them with the sword and with famine and with pestilence, and I will deliver them to be removed to all the kingdoms of the earth to be cursed like an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach among all nations, whether I have driven them. Who has that on their wall? Anybody got that printed out on their mirror in the mornings when you're shaving? You read that? (laughs) Same conversation. And I say same chapter, and I and I I don't want to fall into you know falling into the chapter and verse thing because as I said that wasn't initially there. But this is the same conversation that he was having prior when he said he was going to do good things. Who was he talking to? The same nation. He was talking to the very same nation. The difference is, part of them were behaving and part of them weren't. The ones that were behaving, he said, I'm going to take care of you. The part that weren't behaving, he said, I'm going to curse you. It was the same people. You have to get the full context of what is going on in the passage before we can decide that it is mine. Because if you're going to put Jeremiah 29, 11 on there, you also need to put that on there. You've got to have the same. If you're going to claim one, you've got to be able to claim the other. Look at the broader context. The entire theme of the book is very, very important. Ephesians talks about grace, while the theme of Hebrews is a law. There are two totally different perspectives coming out in the way those two books are written. And every book has its own theme. Every book has their own, its own writer. See, that's where sometimes they talk about uh, conflicts or, or uh, contradictions in Scripture, but that's people, two different people. And I used the example a couple of weeks ago. I showed a picture of that beautiful yard or a meadow or whatever you want to call it and a horse in the middle of it and a nice little path coming down through there and a house hidden up in the corner. Now, if I, and I flash that on the screen and I ask everybody to think about what they just saw, well, everybody would see something a little different. So, Somebody writes, sits down, you know, and Ernie writes, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful yard and there was horses and this, this house was hidden up in the trees. And somebody else says, it was a nice field and there was one horse and no house. Would there be a conflict? No. Two different people wrote what they saw. It's not a contradiction because was it a yard or was it a field? Well, to me it was a yard, to you it was a field. It's the same, it's, it's, it's not a contradiction. This is what happens in scriptures. They want to pin two different writers down to the same way they use wordage. Two different writers, you and I will not use the same wordage. I will express things much differently than you do and, and such. Steps to ponder when interpreting. Who wrote the passage and to whom is it written? Again, if you and I were sitting down writing, it would be totally different even though we're expressing the same story. So you have to look at who is writing the story. But to who is it written? You know, I could write a note and say, um, Hey babe, I sure wish I was there to hold you in my arms and give you a, a, 
a big hug. Well, that would mean something totally different if I was writing to my wife or writing to a six-year-old daughter. Two totally different contexts, two totally different meanings. In, in just the context of what was being written and to who it was written to. Does it have a contemporary application? Not everything in Scripture is about 2016 America. Amen. A lot of it is about Israel and what they were going through in the wilderness or wherever it was specifically written to them. We may be able to take a principle out of it, but we can't necessarily take a promise out of it unless there was a promise given that would apply to us. Does it apply? Does it have a personal application for me? Again, not everything in Scripture is about me, shockingly. <laughs> what is the obvious message of the passage? This is one I think gets more people in trouble. You'll always be the safest if you take what it says at face value first and work out from there. Too many people read something. Uh, oh gosh, there's so many things in Scripture. Hey, you get a Scripture and it says uh, men are to have short hair and women are to have long hair. And people nowadays look at that and they just kind of skip over it. <laughs> that doesn't mean what it says there. No, we need to stop and back up and say, what does it mean? What does it actually say? What is the context of what's being said there? But we skip over it because we've gotten used to not accepting certain parts of Scripture that we don't like or somebody's told us it doesn't apply anymore. What is the context of the passage, the whole thing, when the conversation started and when it ended? What was being said? What was the whole writing of that book? What was being said? Is the message of the passage Old or New Covenant? Makes a big difference when you're interpreting Scripture. There was a couple thousand years difference in between the writings. A lot of difference. Is it speaking of ceremonial law, civil law, or moral law? When you're looking at Old Testament law, you've got to be looking at what kind of law it is. And we've gotten into that before. And I did, a, I think, a whole message on the difference between those laws, so I'm not going to get into it today. I may at some time in the future again. What did the passage mean to the original readers? This is something that I try to do a lot. Whenever there's something in Scripture that I just don't get, and an example is uh, um, the day of the, the week for worship. The Bible does not say in the New Testament, you are to worship on Sunday. Or you're to worship on Saturday. But oh my goodness, is there the biggest fight in the world over those two days? They fight endlessly. You're going to hell if you worship on Sunday. Well, you're going to hell if you worship on Saturday. And they're back and forth going at it. And, I'm, and I can see both sides of the argument. I've studied it, I've read it, and I'm just like, ah, I don't know. So what do I do? I go back to the first century writings of the people who lived in the first century. The people who learned at the feet of the apostles or one generation removed. Because I figure if they, they learned from the apostles, they were probably doing it right. And what do I find? I find dozens, if not hundreds, of writings of the first century church talking about worshiping on Sunday. So I got back to what it meant to them. What did they mean by it? Uh, when they first read it. And I figure when we have a hundred different passages, a hundred different writings who say they worshiped on Sunday, good enough for me, I'll worship on Sunday. I'm good. Anybody want to worship on Saturday? I don't care. <laughs> Assume the clear meaning of is the right one until proven differently. If it says this, it means this. 
There's too many people, too many theologians and scholars who want to tell you that that passage you're reading actually means exactly opposite of what it says. Kind of silly. But they do it all the time. One of them that I, I find the, the funniest is, is in women, in relation to women in ministry in the church. The Bible says women are to keep silence in the church. The modern teaching says what that really means is that they're supposed to be loud and boisterous in church. They're supposed to be in subjection in the church according to the Bible, but the modern theology says no, they're supposed to be in charge. They take every single thing that it says about women in ministry and they flip it around. And they say it actually means exactly opposite of what it says. Let me give you a secret. It doesn't mean exactly opposite of what it says. <laughs> Why so many interpretations? Personal bias. We want it to be a certain way, so therefore it is a certain way. That's a hard thing for people to get over. You wrestle with it, I wrestle with it. Every single person who approaches the Bible wrestles with personal bias. We struggle with that because we believe it a certain way, we've heard it a certain way, we've been taught it a certain way, and that is in us. We believe it a certain way. It's tough to get that out. Sometimes a person is simply not willing to accept a different perspective. I go with what the Bible says unless I don't like it. If I don't like it, we go past it. Family pressure. In this, you'll see this a lot in Catholics, Mormons. A lot of those are probably the two main ones. It will cost them dearly to go away from their religion, from their belief. It'll cost them dearly. Their families will turn on them. They will be ostracized. They will be completely shut out, shut down. And so there's a family pressure that sometimes they're just not... The, the desire to, to be okay with their family becomes more important than their desire to be okay with God. And so they will not accept truth because of that. Pride, they just can't admit that they'd interpreted it wrong all those years. That's the one the preachers wrestle with. They preached it a certain way for so long, and then all of a sudden they say, eh. That may not have been the way I should have been preaching that. But then they have to go in front of their congregation and say, I preached this wrong for the last 30 years. Hard to do. Agenda. Anyone have an agenda when it comes to the Bible? Hmm. Back to the prosperity preachers. They have an agenda. That is to empty your bank account and put it into their bank account. That is an agenda. And they interpret everything in Scripture based on that agenda. They want to take, that, that's the, the end game that they're after. Preconceived ideas, kind of go along, goes along with personal biases. Insecurity, and I mentioned this a little bit a couple weeks ago. Sometimes we just get intimidated because we think, man, David Wilkerson was such a man of God. Matthew Henry commentary says it this way, or, or you know, John MacArthur, he teaches it that way. And we think, well, if they believe it this way, then that must be right because they're a lot smarter and more educated than I am. And, and I don't say I just easily dismiss what somebody I, I, I really respect, what they have to say, I don't just easily dismiss it. It makes me think maybe I ought to look at that more. But there's things that David Wilkerson and I disagreed on, and he's probably one of my all-time favorites. And I still just disagree with him. Drives my brother nuts because I should never, ever, 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 ever disagree with David Wilkerson. So I'm in trouble. <laughs> Fear of ostracization, loss of position, loss of job. Poor exegesis, they just don't know how to study. 
So many people just sit down, open the Bible, and read a chapter because they don't know really anything else. They don't know. If you think that people are uh, grammatically and grammatically uh, uh, literate, read posts on Facebook. You'll find out people don't know how to read or write. Sometimes they write stuff that I'm not sure. Those are English words, but they're kind of in the wrong order. I don't even know what they're saying. They just don't get it. And there's supposed to be these things called periods in there. Somewhere, you know, they just, they just don't know. And so a lot of people, sometimes they struggle educationally to understand. Tunnel vision. They focus on a very few doctrines. That's their pets. They love those. And I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. Uh, they get on that uh, snake handling. Anybody ever been to a snake handling church? My, my friend said, he said he, he actually got an invitation to preach at a, a church in, in Western North Carolina. He said he had never been to the church before. And he showed up and he's sitting up front, right in the front row. And he said, they've brought in these baskets. And he was like, what's that? And the pastor said, oh, that's our snakes. And Ronnie said, do you uh, have a back door? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, but see, if you go to those churches, what do they preach about? Snakes. That's what they preach about, is, is being able to tread on serpents. That's their verse. That's what they're going to preach. They're crazy. If it has to be a snake, we're going to have a problem. Adventists preach Sabbath. That's what they preach all the time. You go to the Church of Christ, they're going to preach about how evil music is. That's what they do. And, and spiritual gifts, the Pentecostals, that's where they're at. They live there. The Baptists, it's eternal security. They love those, their own pet doctrine. It is hard for us as people to get away from all that and look at Genesis clear to Revelation, the whole thing, everything in there. And not, we have those comfort, comfort zones that we get stuck in sometimes. And I'm talking about denominations and churches here, but people do that too. People have their favorite things in Scripture, and they get stuck there. They're intimidated when a teacher goes to the Greek or Hebrew. That intimidates people. The preacher gets up and he said, well, what that actually means in the Greek is... And they go on and they think, whoa, this guy's a Greek scholar. Chances are he doesn't know Greek from, from French. He doesn't have any clue. He looked in a concordance. And you know what he did when he looked in the concordance? Is the concordance has 15 different definitions for that word. He picked the one that fit what he was after. That's what happens to us. That's, again, context. Context. How is that word used by that particular writer? Because you will use words that are comfortable to you or, or you know, education level. A third, somebody with a third grade education is going to use different words than a person with a doctorate. They're going to use different words. And so you have to look at what did that particular writer, how did he use that word? Often there are multiple definitions and the interpreter will choose the one that fits his agenda. They will use a verse out of context to explain a verse out of context. (laughs) Happens a lot. Viewing scripture through the doctrine instead of viewing doctrine through scripture. We can stop right there and let you meditate for about five minutes on that one. Viewing scripture through doctrine... Instead of viewing doctrine through Scripture. Doctrine should come out of Scripture, not the other way around. That's eisegesis versus exegesis again. And I'm going to give you a break here just for a fun moment. Don't get mad at me. But this is just too funny. And some of you will remember this. Some of us old people. 
Is there sound? with understanding <laughs> context. I don't even know where I say it. How do I open it again? <laughs> the PowerPoint one? Ah, there you go. Oh, not that one. We're going to say it all over again. You ready? Oh, come on. All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, the same word can mean something totally different <laughs> to one person than it means from, to another person. I just thought I'd throw that in there to get you uh, lighten up a little bit. <laughs> they like to use a passage that has absolutely nothing to do with the subject. Drives me crazy. If you talk to a... a Good example is a Baptist. If you talk to a Baptist about unconditional eternal security, the first verse they're going to throw at you, 90% of the time, no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Did that have anything whatsoever to do with unconditional eternal security? Nothing. Nothing. Of course you can't pluck me out of God's hand. I can't pluck you out of God's hand. has nothing to do with the subject. They like to do that, especially when they're, they, they don't have a biblical stance for what they're believing. They, they throw on something that just doesn't apply to what they're talking about. When they can't produce a passage that clearly states a doctrine, you can go to the Bible and you can find clear instances of grace. It talks about grace, it explains grace. You can't get around grace in Scripture. The virgin birth, very clearly outlined. Take you right to a verse that talks about Virgin birth, the Trinity, same way. Pre-trib rapture, no verse, no passage, not in there. Doesn't even talk about it. Nothing, it is an inferential thing where they've isogeted that particular doctrine into the Bible. Unconditional eternal security, same way. Arianism, same way. They, they, they created that doctrine and put it in there. And it happens so very often. And that's the end of today. <sighs> Any questions on all that? Yes, sir. You want me to start over? No. <laughs> oh, that's what grandmas are for, is to say no. <laughs> yes, sir. You know, uh, you brought up that day of worship. You know, uh, 
Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Uh, and that's where a lot of people get hung up on that. Yeah. <clears throat> Anything? Anything? Do you hate me? You, know? you mad at me? You going to stone me? Let me know ahead of time so I can run because I'm slow. <laughs> Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this precious group of people. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you'll help us to understand your word better, to study it better, to know it better. We love you and praise you. Help us to have a great time downstairs. Bless the food. Bless the fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, folks. God bless you.